everyone. Welcome to episode 90 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And we're so excited to be together. We actually haven't been for quite some time. I know. It's been a couple weeks again. More than a couple, a few, I think. Good to see you, Chris. I really enjoy my Book Cougar time. And I did a lot of adventuring, book adventuring without you. And it was fun, but not the same. I know. It was fun to watch your travels as people posted pictures. But I did miss you and I miss being there. I know we, we missed having you. So more to come on that. But we wanted to talk about the fact that this is our 90th episode. Yeah. And as longtime listeners know, every 10th episode, we do a giveaway. And we have three books to give away today. Well, we're not really giving them away today, but we're telling you about it. today. We're telling you about it today. And, and these are special books. There are three hardcover books that are all signed by the author's. And that are all related to a biblio adventure that we've done in the past. Three different biblio adventures, to be clear. Yes. One was Book Expo 2018, which seems like a lifetime ago now. It does. <laughs> and it's called Through the Bookstore Window by Bill Petricelli, who's actually a bookstore co-owner. Yes. Yeah. And this is a mystery. He autographed it for us. He was the first author we met that day. And then the second book is In Pieces by Sally Field, which was a very recent Biblio adventure where we got to meet Sally. We got to meet her at the Hachette Book Brunch, uh, which was so much fun. That was in New York City just last month. Yeah. And I'm calling her Sally like she's Sally. my new best friend. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, she is an honorary book cougar. That's right. That's right. And then Louise Penny's Kingdom of the Blind, which was, this was another, this was a 2018 biblio adventure where we went to go see louise penny up in new hampshire, new hampshire in concord new hampshire i believe it was yeah yeah and she signed it um right on the title page with her big squiggly scrawl <laughs> it makes me wonder how many books louise penny has signed in her career oh i know it's got to be overwhelming and it'd be very interesting to see how her signature has morphed from book one to, <laughs> I think she's on book 15 now or yeah. 14 or 15, something like that. Well, I'm sure though, you know, you see authors like on Instagram and, and other social media platforms where they'll post a picture of them at their publisher's house or office um, signing advanced reader copies or, you know, copies like this that are stamped as author signed. And it's just like these gargantuan tables loaded, you know, with stacks of, you know, 10 high, the whole table or two covered. Yeah. And it's just like a marathon. You know, there they are stretching and yeah. getting ready for it. <laughs> they have their carpal tunnel prevention <laughs> braces on their hands. Yeah. So anyway, we have three books and we're going to, if you are subscribed to our newsletter, you are automatically entered to win. If you are not subscribed, please go and do that now. Go to www.bookcougars.com. There's a place there to subscribe. Yep. All you need is a name and an email address. And we only send usually just one email a month, a monthly newsletter. So we promise not to sell your address or anything heinous like that. Yeah. It's really just to know what's happening with the Book Cougars once a month mm -hmm. and to be entered to win in our giveaways. Yep. And I think, well, I guess we should choose a date. Should we say December first sure that's a good okay. date yeah. december 1st everyone yeah that sounds great the other exciting news we have is we signed on signed all the paperwork signed on the dotted line 
to join Bank Square Books and Savoy Bookstore and Cafe in their affiliate program. I'm really excited about that. So this means that uh, when Emily puts the links in the show notes for every book we mention, it'll be linked to Bank Square Books slash Savoy Bookstore. And if you click on it and you end up purchasing things, we get a little bit of a cut of that purchase. Yeah. And what's really cool, too, is they also have free media mail shipping. So no shipping charges. So think about your holiday gifts. You know, you can ship them directly to the people who are wishing for books from you. We personally, well, I can't maybe speak for Chris. I know I personally think getting books is the number one gift. Yeah. Think about that. Definitely books, gift cards. Yeah. To bookstores. Yes. Oh, I love a Always gift card. A treat. Yeah. Yes. So, but we're just really excited about this because we love to support our local indies and we love you potentially supporting us a little bit in this way. Yeah. Every little bit helps. Totally. We're speaking in our new microphones that were definitely helped by those who help us. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> so, Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading two books that are both closely related. Ooh. One is nonfiction. One is fiction. The nonfiction is Prairie Fires. This is The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder is the subtitle. It's by Carolyn Fraser. Again, you know what? This is another Book Expo tie-in because she was at Book Expo surprisingly. Like, I didn't even know she was going to be there, and she was there signing copies of this book. They were giving it away. She won the Pulitzer. Yeah. Um, so that was pre-Pulitzer at Expo, I'm pretty sure. You know what? It was it? just like the a week or two before. Like, it was very recent. Yeah. And that's why I was just like, whoa, I can't believe she's there. She was in Booth, mm-hmm. you know, where all the uh, publishers are. So it was great. And I said, oh, my gosh, congratulations on the success of your book. She's like, wow. I mean, she looked like stunned. She's yeah. like, yeah, no one's more surprised than I am. <laughs> That's great. So I am just into, I think I'm on page 66. It is so readable. Mm-hmm. It is like compulsively readable. I don't know that much of the details about Laura Ingalls Wilder. And for those of you who that name might be ringing a bell, but you can't place it. She wrote Little House on the Prairie, uh, the whole series of books that were the basis of the 1970s TV show. Which I adored. Yeah, I watched a lot of that. I never read the books, though, as a kid. I can't remember if I read the books. Yeah, I did not. Mm-hmm. So I did read the first one, Little House in the Big Woods, which I'll talk about in our upcoming segment. But the second book that I'm currently reading is the second book in the series called Farmer Boy. How fun to read the fictional work at the same time as reading, this is a biography of Laura Ingalls Wilder, yeah. right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it is neat because I, you know, I thought I should read one of these just to get a sense of it so I understand a little bit more. And I didn't plan on reading more, but I just, I they, there was a preview. I, I checked it out of the library, an, an ebook copy. And of course, there was a preview of the next book and I just started reading it. And I was like, well, I, apparently I'm going to be reading the whole series. So. <laughs> How many books is in the series? Do I you know? think there were nine. Okay. Wow. I'm not 100% on that. So the first one is Little House in the Big Woods, which is set in Nebraska, uh, Nebraska sorry, everyone, um, Wisconsin. Okay. And then the second one actually goes away from Laura's family to, I think, the husband's side of the family, Almanzo, mm-hmm. as a little boy in New York. 
And the first book, which I'll talk about, well, I might as well talk about it right here. Um, that one is more kind of like episodic, a lot of memories. And the second book so far is a little bit more, there There seems to be a little bit more of a through storyline about bad big boys who were in the school hmm. who really physically abused the teacher potentially. Two teachers in the past didn't make it and one even died from his injuries from these big boys. Oh, that's terrible. Isn't it? Yeah. It's so very I'm just dark. It, you know what? It is, right? Little House on the Prairie has this image of being so nostalgic and pleasant and everything. But um, yeah, hard times. Yeah. You know, you reading between the lines. Well, that's not exactly reading between the lines, that scene with those big boys. But the Little House in the Big Woods, there's there's some tension there. But um, I'm really enjoying it. Again, that's uh, Prairie Fires, The American Dreams of Laura Ingalls Wilder by Caroline Frazier. Excellent. I'm currently reading The Great Santini by Pat Conroy. (laughs) For those of you who have been longtime listeners, you know that Chris and I both have an affinity for Pat Conroy and very sad when he passed away. I was recently down in Charleston, which I will talk about in the Biblio Adventures segment. And you know, it's all things Pat Conroy down there. You go to a bookstore and there's, you know, his whole body of work. There's signed copies. There's pictures of him in picture frames. And I got, at one point, I was walking south of Broad Street, <laughs> which is the name of one of his books is South of Broad. And I just, like, I had a tingly moment. That's awesome. <laughs> I actually took a picture down. The, it's a very beautiful street. And, you know, texted it to my sister who recently read that novel for the first time. And I said... I'm walking south of Broad. Um, So I just had Pat Conroy on my brain when I got home and I got to the gentleman caller's house and I had finished my book on the plane and needed a new book. And you and I had picked a copy of that up for him when we were at Bear Pond Books up in Vermont one time. I wasn't with you, but... No, maybe it wasn't bear. It had a Bear Pond Books um, bookmark, actually, but we did buy it together because I remember asking you... Oh, yeah, which one which, to start with? You know, it might have been at Northshire. Okay. Yeah. Oh. And that was it. And yeah. I realized as I'm reading it, I have never read it, which I thought I had pretty much read all of Pat Conroy, but it's about a family. And the dad is a bit of a bulldog. His name's Bull Meacham. And his mother, the mother is Lillian. And he is a Marine, a fighter pilot in the Marines. And the, they have four children who have been moved around from base to base all of their years as military families are wont to do. And it's really just, um, you know, I'm about halfway through and it's a family saga. Bull is a, as I said, a bit of a bulldog bully, a little mean. And he refers to himself as the great Santini, Mm -hmm. which is where the title of the book comes from. So the thing about Pat Conroy that I love is just his writing. His writing is beautiful, the way he describes people and things. He's funny. There's always a little bit of humor in it. And as I think maybe you've said this, or maybe it says it on the book jacket, I don't know, that even though Bull is, I mean, he's abusive a little bit to his family, and he's (laughs) not a little bit, a lot. um, You still really like the character, which you find kind of maddening, Mm -hmm. you know, as you're reading it. But um, Yeah, and supposedly Pat Conroy really toned things down. Like the abuse of his actual father was much worse. Yeah, because this is semi-autobiographical, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and when, uh, this is a sidebar, but when, um, after he retired from the Marine Corps, Pat Conroy's mom 
divorced her husband. She waited for that because it's very important, especially for officers in that time period, to have a wife and a stable family unit. It could be detrimental to your career to have family problems. So when she was uh, in court, she handed the judge a copy of the great Santini as evidence for her divorce. Wow. Yeah. I wonder if he read it. You know what? I think he did. And I think, you know, from what I remember, there's a sequel that Pat Conroy wrote about his dad, a more nonfiction account. I can't think of the name of it right now, but they, it did cause a rift in the family, his writing in general. They did become friends to the point where he would, uh, the dad would go on book signing tours with Pat Conroy and actually autograph his name in the books. Wow. As well as uh, Pat Conroy Mm. autographing the book. So, you know, you think like he was so abusive, but they reconciled somehow. Yeah, I and I think know it's how like that happens, but for yeah. some people, it's like it's you know your parent is your parent, and they're not gonna step away or remove themselves, which, as a lot of people would say, that says a lot about the person who's not moving away or removing themselves from the situation. Yeah, but you know, as a writer, Pat Conroy really observed people and really understood people, so he must have saw things in his father that we outsiders can't see. Yeah. For that kind of reconciliation that they had. Yeah. Yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. yeah. And it's a good movie, too. Oh, uh, right. I have to tell you all a story. So it's uh, Robert Duvall and, oh, my God, I just told you the woman's name. Who, um, Blythe Danner. Blythe Danner is the, the mom. And uh, I had a friend when she was in school for uh, social work asked to borrow the movie for one of the, like, the family units that she was in when they were talking about abuse. Mm. And... um and Mm. how families deal with abuse in healthy and not so healthy ways. Cause the movie is pretty, pretty uh, a good adaptation Mm. and lots of beautiful scenes of the, the low country. It's, it is beautiful down there. Well, the Prince of Tides is, I read the Prince of Tides and watched the movie and that too has a lot of abuse. Yeah. Uh, That's more alcoholism Mm -hmm. in that. So yeah, all of his books do like, you know, I mean, another one I liked is the Lords of Discipline which is, again, you know, autobiographical in nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the dad isn't as present in that one. I mean, he is, but not like the great Santini. Well, you know, probably if I had to hypothesize, and sadly we can't ask Pat now, another author I seem to be on a first-name basis with. <laughs> um, but I think by writing, he probably worked out some of his own demons, and maybe that's what allowed him to have a relationship with his father yeah who quite knows possibly you know and i also yeah. think becoming a grown very tall big man might have helped too where he didn't feel threatened by him anymore. right yeah he could have squashed his dad eventually yeah. so yeah, that helps. when i met pat conroy and he autographed the copy of the great santini that i had he signed it for the love of fathers mm. wow hm. yeah complicated yeah I'm so happy you're reading it. Yeah, I'm loving it. I mean, it's it's very readable. What did you just read? Well, like I said earlier, I just read Little House in the Big Woods, that first Laura Ingalls Wilder book. And it's illustrated by Garth Williams, who did the illustrations for Stuart Little Oh, I love Stuart Little. part of Charlotte's Web, I believe. And then a lot of these farm animal books, like the Golden Books and things like that. 
so that was kind of cool. I, I've been I mentioned I have the uh, um, ebook copy, and they do have the illustrations in that, which is cool oh, to see nice. them. So that was one of my recent reads. How about you? I finished This Tender Land by William Kent Kruger. This is a book I actually had an arc of and thought I would dig into months ago, and I just got to it. So it is available now. For those of you who recognize his name, he also wrote the book Ordinary Grace, which I loved. Yeah, I think we both read that one. Yeah, I loved that book. He And he has a series, a mystery series, or a... Yeah, it is a series. It's set in Minnesota, I believe. Is it a mystery, or, or is it like a cop series? I don't know, which might be one in the same. I'm not sure. Like but a police procedural? Yeah, I can't pro- remember. Procedural? Yeah. Yeah. And then he has a couple standalones. Right. And Ordinary and this Grace is, was a standalone. Yeah, as is This Tender Land. And I give this book all my love and all my stars. <laughs> I just adored it. It's about four orphans who um, the book starts where three of the four are actually in a school called the Lincoln School in Minnesota. That was one of those schools where they put Native American children to kind of Americanize them. I'm using air quotes there and would pull them away from their families or sometimes native parents would actually allow and bring their children there because they thought that they could just take care of them for a little bit when they needed a little helping hand. And the people who run the school are not good people. There's a lot of abuse. Three of the orphans escape with another young woman who I'm not going to give any spoilers as to why she tags along. And then it just becomes an adventure story. I mean, they literally escape by canoe. (laughs) Their final destination is St. Louis, Missouri. That's where they're trying to get to by canoe. So then the Mississippi then? Yes. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) It is so good. And then they just run into casts of characters as they come to land to, you know, scrounge for food and make their way. And I mean, they even run into it. It almost reminded me of like they joined the circus kind of, but it wasn't. It was more of um, one of those... Um, what do you call those where, where people are kind of doing like spiritual tent revival type oh, of things? Yeah. yeah. And so they meet people along the way and his writing is just beautiful and it's very scenic. If you enjoy, you know, Minnesota and the Minnesota territories, you know, and all of the lakes and the rivers and it, it was fantastic. Cool. I just loved it. So I don't really want to spoil anything because his writing, it is, there are kind of mysteries involved, you know, and where they're going to end up and who different people are. There's many twists and turns, figuratively and literally. <laughs> so this Tender Land by William Kent Kruger, I also think it would make a fantastic holiday gift, even though we're going to do holiday gifts later. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that this one I think would be a crowd pleaser for all sorts of people on your list. Good to know. Well, I read Ninth House by Lee Bardugo, which is probably... One of the most mentioned books on this podcast um, <laughs> since Book Expo, when yeah. we talked about the big banners that they had hanging up there. And they did not have ARCs, advanced reader copies there, but I did purchase a copy after it came out. And, you know, high hopes for this book because it's been so uh, hyped. Yeah, which is problematic. It is problematic. Um, I, I have to say, like, I really like the plot and the characters and the setting. I thought... It was all really uh, fantastic. It did lack a little bit in atmosphere. Um, It's set in New Haven around Yale. I think what took away from the story was there's a lot of back and forth with the main character's backstory. 
to the point where, you know, it didn't build tension to have that kind of back and forth in time as some stories can, mm-hmm. it really took me out of the story. And it made me, uh, it, it made it seem not gimmickly, gimmicky, um, but it just, it took me out of the story, this yeah. back and forth. You know, sometimes a flashback can really enrich a story and help you make sense and maybe even project a little bit into the future. But in this case, I have to say, the material was really great, but the way it was handled, I didn't appreciate it. It took me out of the story. Mm. Yeah. And that is my one criticism. But overall, I enjoyed it. I'm happy I read it. There was one point, like around the page, maybe 125 or so, when I thought, I could DNF this book. Oh, wow. You know, but I thought, just stick with it, because you've heard, you know, it's just been so built up and everything. And she is a really well-known young adult author. This is her first book for adults. It's a series. It's a first in a series. They're already making a movie out of it. Um, the premise is that there are these, well, it's not a, there are secret societies at Yale that are not secret. Right. <laughs> um, but in the, the world of this book, they each deal with different types of magic. And the ninth house was formed to kind of oversee things a little bit. In the past, things have gotten a little bit out of hand. Then the main character, Alex, Galaxy is her real first name, has a special ability and had a really hard upbringing, a really tough life for economic reasons. Um, and then also because of this ability that she has, but she's recruited by Yale after a horrific mass murder happens that she survives. Wow. And so she is completely in over her head academically and starting to learn about her powers a little bit more in this context of the world around Yale and New Haven. And I love the way she takes the history of New Haven, like actual history, and a lot of these um, murder mysteries that have actually happened in the past that are, you know, haunting New Haven. One of my friends does a haunting New Haven tour during Halloween season. (laughs) And and she takes one of these, and it's part of the plot. And I thought that was so cool. Like. And, you know, New Haven is one of those cities that's never quite made it economically, at least not for the last, you know, 100 or so years. Mm -hmm. And she, the reason for that is the magic that's located there. That's why it's never became quite like a Cambridge or Hmm. that type of city with, you know, near an Ivy League institution. Hmm. So... If you like that kind of story, you know, fantasy, little gothic-y, kick-ass woman character, you might enjoy this story. I almost wonder sometimes I think that they're almost, they're writing, like the backstory thing happens, the back and forth, because they're almost writing the screenplay. I know. know? Yeah, I know. And it's it's a little annoying yeah, when that Yeah, that's judgy of me to say. I yeah. have no idea if that's true. But, you know, when you hear, like, it's already been picked up and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just makes you wonder. I know. I didn't really have that sense when I was reading it. I, I've read some novels where I thought, oh, this is for the cinema. Like, mm-hmm. you, I, I don't know. There's, It's just a feeling you got. I didn't quite get that feeling. I thought she was really trying to do something cool and interesting and different. And she does. Mm-hmm. It's just I, the execution, like I said, pulled me out yeah. of the story. And, and I saw the mechanics behind the story. And that's not a good thing. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, but again, that's Ninth House by Lee Bardugo. I read Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay Branya. Nice. Oh my 
gosh. I've read a couple of those stories. You have? I have, yeah. Um, So I wasn't planning to read this book, but then he was a replacement author for the festival I was heading down to in Charleston. And so I literally got it on my e-reader from the library as I was boarding the plane and then started reading it. It's a book of short stories. The first story, there's a lot of violence in them. And I mean... Yes. harsh violence yeah up close I, personal kind yeah. of violence one-on-one kind of yeah. violence yeah and the first one is called the finkelstein five i believe that's the title or it's either that or the five finkelsteins i might Something have it like backwards that. yeah but the premise of the story and this happens pretty much right away is that five young children young black children 13 down to seven years old i believe are just hanging out in front of the local public library and a white man comes out of the library with his two young children and feels threatened by these kids. So he proceeds to go to his car to get a chainsaw and saws off all five of these little kids heads. Yes. To the point where the youngest one he chases. Right. Seven year old. But the story goes to the court case. Yeah. Courtroom scene where you you know you're reading the the justification for this that this big white man felt intimidated by these five black children and hanging then, out in front of the local public library yeah, he puts his kids in his car and gets his chainsaw and then goes and cuts their heads off and it's just i mean it's ridiculous oh it's so and, and that and that was the point i mean i'll talk more about hearing him speak about this book and this story in particular but he ends up you know Spoiler, but he ends up not being accused of mm-hmm. the crimes. Yeah. So that's the point of the story is then told from from the point of view of a um, teenage black boy who's who lives in the town and they're trying to reconcile this idea that this horrendous crime took place and the perpetrator who so obviously and admittedly did it is has no consequences. Right. It's the fallout yeah. from that. Yeah. And it's brilliantly written, and as are the rest of the stories in the book, but just to warn you of the sort of violence that is in it. Yeah. And when I heard him speak, he said, you know, I put that story first because I figured if people could make it through that one, right. they, were, they, were, they weren't going to make it through the rest of the book either. I mean, either. it's a hell of a story. Yeah. I mean, it is. I, I'm not one. I don't, I, you know, to, to read that one-on-one violence is really hard. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking like, oh, my God, like, yeah, <laughs> how many pages is this? But yeah. wow, what a story. It's one of the best short stories I've read in a long time. I agree. And there were others in there, too. And I mean, he, he takes on all sorts of different social ills, essentially. I mean, Friday Black, the title of the book is a play on Black Friday, which, as most of you know, is well, at least in the United States is the big shopping retail shopping day after Thanksgiving where people go hog wild because stores offer sales and um, you know, they, they make a profit for the first time. Well, but they, (laughs) but people shoppers have a tendency to go crazy to get the thing that they desperately have to get for their, you know, five-year-old grandchild or whatever. So that's the point of the story. And there's a play on it in the sense that the title of the book is called Friday black, but so he he takes on retailism, he takes on school shootings, all sorts of manner of societal ills are addressed in the book. I highly recommend it, but 
huge warning that it's not easy to get through. But I did. I was really glad that I read it before I got to see him speak. I read two others. I did, too. I'll just briefly talk about one. It's the title is Women Who Think Too Much, How to Break Free of Overthinking and Reclaim Your Life. It's by Susan Nolan Hoxima, I believe is how you pronounce that. I'm raising my hand. (laughs) (laughs) It was um, footnoted in another book that I had read and enjoyed and um i thought i'll check it out the library because we had it and i kind of did more of a heavy skim on it and the whole thing about women who think too much like in the past i've been told i think too much and it was always meant as an insult like there was something wrong with me she's not really talking about deep thinking on a subject or even worrying being a worry wart because worry being a worry wart, which is something I've dealt with in my mm-hmm. life that's about future things. Right. This type of overthinking is kind of being like so self-analytical that you're constantly rehashing things that have happened. Mm-hmm. But I just thought I'd read one quote from the book that I really liked. And I, I put it in my Goodreads review. So it's a paragraph I just really appreciated um, at the point where she's talking about the need for taking quiet time to really get in touch with yourself and figure out your own values. Because one of the issues that she talks about in the book a lot is just how we're constantly being bombarded by information and attitudes and warnings about how we should be as women. Mm. Um, So this is the quote. We cannot, as a society, choose leaders who represent our best values if we do not, as individuals, spend the necessary quiet time discovering and refining those values. Otherwise, we end up either letting other people make choices for us or going with the candidate who has the best ad campaign. We have an obligation not only to ourselves, but to current and future generations to connect with our values and make choices as a citizen that reflect these values. Again, this takes time and turning down the volume. And after I read that, I went and I checked the publication date, and it was 2003. Wow. Quite a long time ago, yeah. but so deeply relevant. Absolutely. To our current political situation. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Well, I read, as you might imagine, after reading Friday Black, I needed a bit of a palate cleanser. <laughs> <laughs> so on the flight home, I read a book called The Last Book Party by Karen Dukas. Huh. D-U-K-E-S-S, how you spell her name. And this was a really just fun little romp. Part of what I loved about it is the lion chair of the book takes place on the Cape, Cape Cod, right in Truro, which is where I stayed the first time I ever, after moving out here, got to go to Cape Cod. I mean, it literally took place right around the like the street where I was staying so so I I really enjoyed that but the premise it's about it's kind of a coming of age tale about this young woman named Eve Rosen who's working at a small publishing house in New York City and just as a little assistant and feeling like she's not getting anywhere and she's tasked with running an errand to drop something off to someone out on the Cape who is one of their authors who's writing a memoir and she has communicated with him via email and such and long story short after establishing a relationship with this gentleman and his wife who is a poet he asks her kind of flippantly if she'd be interested in um, being his research assistant and she goes back to her office job in the city and decides you know what bunk it I'm gonna go for this and becomes his assistant and gets very entwined in this couple's lives There's some infidelity in the book, 
But the book title, The Last Book Party, has to do with the fact that this couple for years has held a party towards the end of summer where people come dressed as their favorite literary characters. (laughs) So that's kind of the capstone of the book is, you know, what are people going to dress in? What's going to happen at the party? And it's intertwined with, you know, family dysfunction, (laughs) one of my favorite (laughs) subjects. Um, And it was really fun. It was really fun. And also just, you know, how young 20 year olds make some mistakes. And that's kind of what your 20s are all about. So I really enjoyed it. If you're looking for a light read and kind of a, a little hug and a nod to the cape. It's a it's a great one. The Last Book Party by Karen Dukas. That's a great title. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. Cool. Well, the other book I read, it was a graphic novel. Oh, fun. It's a book. I don't think I've talked about it before on the podcast, but I did talk about it when Russell had us on his YouTube, his booktube channel, um, Ink and Paper blog, just at the end of Book Expo, because I scored an advanced reader copy of this book. It's a graphic novel. It's nonfiction. It's called Smedley. And Smedley Butler was a Marine Corps general who, for the longest time, was the most highly decorated Marine. And his dates were, gosh, like he retired after 30-odd years in the Marines in the late 1920s or early 30s. So he saw so many of the early wars and not even wars, but just actions that the United States took against other countries. So this is a graphic novel kind of about his life and the advanced reader copy I have the first couple pages were color and then it was black and white oh interesting yeah so you can you can kind of see that but um it's nice to get an advanced reader copy and I appreciate it and this is from Dead Reckoning which is the graphic novel imprint from the Naval Institute Press and they've been putting out some really cool books this one just came out October 16th I'm not sure who the intended audience is because if you're a marine you're very familiar with Smedley Butler. Okay. You learn about him in boot camp. And so if you know about him, this book seems a little simplistic. Mm. And if you don't know about him, I don't know how interesting this book would make him seem if you would want to go and learn more about him or think, okay, that's good. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm done. It's definitely a book for adults um, because the word shit is used at one point and then the word assholes is used so it's not for a younger audience and i think sometimes people make that assumption with graphic novels i know i do until i've seen some graphic novels it's just like wow yeah that is so not for (laughs) kids um but there's this one scene after smedley gets shot he's in um china during the boxer rebellion and he gets shot and somebody says how you feeling captain and he says like a can of smashed assholes Yeah, you wouldn't want your 10-year-old for that to become their new favorite, you know, catchphrase. Exactly. That'd be problematic. Right, yeah. Uh, I've never heard that phrase. No, Um, neither have I. Kids are very quick to pick up on things like (laughs) that. Well, I have a, this is maybe kind of an an innocent question, but when you're saying you're not sure the intended audience, where, because can you only buy these books directly from the Naval Institute Press? No, I think th- I think some of them are starting to be picked up at bookstores that okay. might have a, because they're all related to military mm-hmm. somehow. Um, and some of them are I think a lot of them are nonfiction. They're memoirs and like this one kind of biographical. I haven't seen any in stores, but 
I haven't necessarily looked mm-hmm. for them specifically. Okay. Um, but there, there's some really good ones and more coming out. And, and I'm not saying this isn't a, a good graphic novel. I'm just confused by it. Right. When I start thinking like, who would I recommend this to? Yeah. I'm not really sure who I would recommend it to. Yeah. Um, I, just because I'm not sure it knows its audience all that well. But what's really interesting, there is um, some uh, uh, statements before and after. So it starts uh, with action around the Bonus Army, which was in the 1930s. Uh, the veterans of World War I were promised money by the government. But they wouldn't get that money until like 1945. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after World War I, there was the Depression, there was the Dust Bowl. People were desperate for mm-hmm. money. And as the case with today's veterans, sometimes you get out of the military and there's no place for you. Mm-hmm. People always talk a lot about hiring veterans and the government's always talking about taking care of veterans. But reality is sometimes quite different from mm-hmm. the words. So a group, um, we're talking thousands of veterans got together and marched on Washington and established what they called Hoovervilles because Hoover was right. the president at the time uh, to try and get the government to try to pressure the government to to release this money now. So it starts with that and Smedley coming to do a speech at the big rally and he, he's he avoids the, his handler and gets out so he can go and talk with the people and be with people on his own. Mm-hmm. And they, of course, you know, when they find out who he is, he's such a legend back then, they want to hear his stories. So that's how you get some of these backstories of his adventures. Like he did go undercover in Mexico at one point and kind of established a, a plan to attack Mexico that was never implemented. So it's really, it's interesting in that respect. But at the very end, a lot of it talks about, I shouldn't say at the very end, Throughout the story and at the end, there is conversation about how so many of the veterans in other countries after World War I were so dismayed and angry that they turned towards fascism, Mm. which was happening in the United States. But throughout this, there's the theme of vote. You need to vote. Mm. You don't need to turn towards fascism. You need to vote out the people who are not doing what they say they're going to do and vote in democratic-minded politicians who will right so that's a great message mm-hmm. yeah 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 I, I never said the author it's jeff mccomsey is uh the author of this and he has written fubar which is a historical zombie anthology <laughs> of graphic novels cool. which i've come across those okay. before yeah so that reminds me when i didn't say with this tender land by william kent kruger that the time period it takes place in is depression era oh, okay. which really has an impact on these kids as they're trying to travel and find food and run into people who are struggling with a lot of the same yeah you know, interesting yeah. yeah well and i just want to say one thing about more about smedley butler is he did spend over 30 years in the marine corps fighting all of these small wars and he came to really see especially after world war 1 how businesses and industry were profiting off of war and Mm -hmm. so he wrote this small book based on a lot of the speeches that he gave called war is a racket and this is not something you learn about in marine corps boot camp (laughs) (laughs) but basically you know a racket as he says it's a small group of people who know what's really going on but they're presenting things as something else Mm -hmm. and and profiting war profiting right so and he said the only way to to end it is to get money out of war making. Mm-hmm. But as he says at the beginning, war making is one of the easiest and oldest ways to make money. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. sad. Yeah. Sad but true. Totally. And hasn't changed. 
I also read Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. Oh, cool. Now, this is another one I'd gotten at as an arc mm-hmm. a while ago. And I have to admit, I tried to read it several times and couldn't. And then when I saw our buddy Ryan down in Charleston, he said, Russell, who we just mentioned from Ink and Paper blog, suggested the audio. Oh. So right away, I went and downloaded the audio and listened to it and adored it. So... For those of you who don't know and aren't familiar with Jacqueline Woodson, she is a poet by trade. I believe she got her start as a poet and has um, written quite a bit of poetry and a lot of young adult novels. This is an adult novel. And she's someone that we saw when we were at Book Expo this year. And she talked a lot about the white space, remember? Yes, on a page. Yes, white Mm -hmm. space on a page and how important it is to let people sit with a thought which is very common in poetry, but you don't find it as common in uh, fiction. Yeah. And this book, even though I was listening to it, it's very much filled with that, which I loved. That's great. Yeah. And it's told um, from the point of view of, of several different characters. The premise of it is it starts with a kind of a coming, um, I was going to say coming out, but I don't think that's the right term. You know, those parties, like when someone turns 16, Kind of like the idea of a quinceanera. Oh, yeah, they call it a coming out party. Okay, it is a coming Uh, out party. Okay, okay. Coming out and being available. Okay, so it's it's this young girl's coming out party, and she's putting on a dress that originally was meant for her mother, who couldn't wear the dress because she became pregnant with her. Wow. So 16 years prior, the dress was supposed to be donned by her mother, and her mother couldn't wear it. So that's kind of the opening scene of the book. And it sets the stage for, you know, a story that's rich with how your life changes when you decide to carry a baby to term when you're 16 years old, and how you had plans for your life and those plans change. And so it takes into account different characters, like the father of the child and grandparents, the young woman who becomes pregnant family comes from a different socioeconomic class than the young man who's the father of the baby. So all of the grandparents come into play, the young child that's born and is now the 16-year-old and the mother of that child who's now the 30-something-year-old. And it's really brilliantly written, I think. And the way the audio works is that different people voice the characters, which I really like. That's cool. Yeah, it adds a layer, I feel like, to it instead of someone trying to change their voice, you know, like a woman trying to have a male voice and things like that. And then Jacqueline Woodson actually steps in. There's uh, one storyline where it's third person, I think. And she does all of those narrations, which is so funny because I didn't know that to the end. And I was like, gosh, that narrator sounds so much like Jacqueline Woodson. (laughs) Well, it was. And I didn't find that out until I was reading about it later. But um, she takes some turns in the book that are really surprising. I mean, if you think about teenage pregnancy, you often think about the impact that it has on the young woman and that her life goes in a certain direction. And I don't want to spoil it, but that is... Some surprises take place in this book okay. that I really appreciated. She's a very thoughtful writer. She, because she's a poet, she writes with incredible brevity. As a matter of fact, I was reading one, one person's review on Goodreads, and she said, I wish she would develop her characters more. You know, And I feel like, ooh, it's the opposite for me, that I feel like she does it so well, mm-hmm. so sparsely. Mm-hmm. You know? That less is more. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. So it's a really interesting 
kind of family saga about from different character points of view. But also, there's a definite historical racial influence to the book, too, because she talks about the grandmother character and her life and how when she was coming of age in Mississippi and how different it was for her then. Most of the book takes place in Brooklyn and some in Ohio and things like that. So I didn't say that very well, but she weaves history in, in a very interesting way that I think is really important. So read at the bone, Jacqueline Woodson. I didn't do well with it in print, but I did really well with it on audio. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Biblio adventures. We went on a fantastic Biblio adventure together. We did, along with our friend Emily. Yeah. The other Emily. The other Emily. (laughs) We went to Providence, Rhode Island, and we saw Gretchen Rubin and her sister Elizabeth Craft at one of their Happier Hour live events. It was really fun. The biggest surprise to me was it was a very intimate venue. Mm -hmm. I thought we were going to be in like a, you know, big conference center almost or something. And it was this really nice, intimate theater. They were hilarious. They were. Yeah. If you're a fan of the Happier Hour podcast, they did. The show was very much like an episode of a podcast. Yeah. They did their different segments. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cute. They were very um, real, Mm -hmm. you know, and Gretchen Rubin is known for her paradigm that she researched and created called the four tendencies. Mm -hmm. Chris and I refer to that quite a bit. I'm an upholder and I'm a rebel. And then the other two tendencies are obliger and questioner. Yes. And it's really funny because when I was visiting some friends recently, we all talked about what our tendencies were. So Gretchen Rubin has infiltrated a lot of people's <laughs> psyche with these tendencies. And I think it, it makes for great fodder to talk about how you relate to the world and each other. Yeah. And they one of the segments they had, you know, Q&A from the audience. So audience members could go up and ask a question. And I remember one of the... Uh, audience members said i'm in an office full of questioners how can we ever get any work done (laughs) she's like because you know we have a meeting and it's this question 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 why how well and she's like we don't get anything done and i don't remember what the answer was do you (laughs) (laughs) well i mean she i think she was also coming from the you know i'm an upholder and at some point we have to you know move on and i don't there wasn't a specific answer i think gretchen rubin gave her some suggestions of you know that there are certain things that questioners are looking for and if you can get to that point but then at some point you have to say you know in order to move on from this and accomplish things we have to we have to pick something and, yeah. and let's see how it goes and yeah. ask questions about how it's yeah, going. Maybe Exactly. We can come back to it with more questions. <laughs> yeah. It was fun. We had a really good time. We went out yeah. for dinner beforehand. Yeah. I went to a really delicious bakery after that. Yeah. So we, yeah, we walked from the restaurant where we had dinner to a bakery and, and had dessert and then walked back to the theater yeah. Where Emily saved me, I almost smashed my face into the ground. Yeah, it was a bad moment. Yeah, I was walking along with my hands in my pocket, and I don't know if I hit a crack in the thing or a nut or something, and, yeah. and my hands were in my pocket, and I started stumbling, and thank God yeah. you grabbed me because my face was going down yeah. to the concrete. No, it was quick reflexes, because fortunately you were walking just a titch behind me, like mm-hmm. one step behind me. So. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for that. Oh, my pleasure. <laughs> it's a good thing it's a podcast because, yeah. like, if we had a TV show and that did happen, <laughs> it would be that bad. wouldn't have been pretty. No, no. 
So that was really fun. If you get a chance to see them, I know, I think they've finished their events for this year, but I would definitely keep track of on their webs, her website, it's GretchenRubin.com and see if they, because they've made tracks. They were all over the country. Yes. See if they're coming to you. It was a really fun date night out. I enjoyed it. I did too. And it was fun to um, see Elizabeth Craft because I didn't really, her voice is so different from Gretchen's Mm -hmm. on the podcast. So and I'd never seen her or even looked at pictures of her or anything. So it's always fun to get that visual of people yes. and have that for their voice as they're Absolutely. listening to the podcast. And they're sisters. And it's hilarious, too, just to see how sisters can be so different, but mm-hmm. yet, you know, have this thing that they do together. Yeah. I have three siblings myself, and I'm always, I always find it so fascinating how similar we are and how different we are mm-hmm. all at the same time. So then I think you want, went on a biblio adventure by yourself. I did. You? I went up to Bank Square Books and saw Richard King. Um, his new book is Ahab's Rolling Sea, A Natural History of Moby Dick, which is a great idea because Moby Dick is all about whales. There's so much detail about whales and so much detail about the sea. And King, I haven't started reading the book yet, he puts Moby Dick into its historical context. And one of the interesting things he talks about was that, you know, in the 19th century, when um, Melville was writing this, they knew about deforestation and how that was wrecking havoc on the landscape, but they really didn't see any problems with the ocean. And they thought about the ocean as like a completely self-regenerating entity So for a 19th century person now to look at the ocean and how we look at it, that it is in danger, that extinction is happening at such a fast rate, they'd be shocked Mm -hmm. because they had no conception of the ocean um, being in any kind of danger at the time. They thought it was completely replenishable, you know. But one of the neat points he makes is that there are no whale guides at this time, but here you have these whalers who, when they're out, they would stand uh, two-hour watches for days, weeks, months on end, two hours, just standing and looking at the ocean. He's like, never has there been such observation hmm. and such up-close personal interaction with whales. He said, you know, they captured the whale. I mean, they hunted the whale up close and personal on these little boats, and then they cut the whale apart and knew all its parts and pieces and everything. And he said, a biologist now, he's like, even the top whale biologists, they're lucky to get to touch a whale a couple times in their lives, Hmm. as opposed to these whalers. So this picture that's on the cover is from a sailor who drew pictures of the different whales he observed. And um, it's a really beautiful cover. It is beautiful. I really admire that. And I also didn't realize that... um, Richard King's first book or an earlier book he has more than two is The Devil's Cormorant A Natural History of That Bird which is one of my favorite birds oh yeah I love they're them. plentiful where we live yeah and one of the neat things is uh, Richard drew a little picture in every person's book for the whale book you can get a picture of a whale oh look and at then that. for the cormorant he drew this little picture of a cormorant and okay funny story you could see that the name jennifer is i know says for jennifer crossed out chris so many thanks for meeting with me rich i accidentally bought his copy 
<laughs> that they had there. Like I didn't know that it was his. That's hilarious. And, uh, and then I, when I saw that, I was like, to Jennifer, I was like, huh. So I went up and I, I told him, I was like, I, I accidentally bought your book. He's like, oh, that's no problem. So we worked it out. It's <laughs> really funny. But I really look forward to reading these two books. They're yeah. going to be great winter reading. For sure. That's so cool. Yeah. I'm so glad you got to see him. Yeah, I am too. Talk about a gift idea. If you have a Moby Dick fan in your life, they would probably really enjoy this book. Or you could purchase that with a copy of Moby Dick and for someone who's never read Moby Dick. Exactly. It just would be a nice little add-on. Mm-hmm. Well, I took a big adventure down to Charleston, South Carolina to go to the Charleston to Charleston Festival. This was the third annual year of the festival. It was November 7th through 10th. They're going to do it again next year. I highly recommend you go if you're looking for a fun book adventure. It's Charleston is a great city. I've always wanted to go. It's an amazing food city. I had probably the best meal of my life while I was there and found a bakery that I would frankly live in if I lived close to it. (laughs) Um, And then the festival itself was really fantastic. They had about three or four things to do every day. It was one of those where you didn't have to make decisions about, am I going to do this one or am I going to do that one? That's good. Yeah, they all took place at the same theater. You could buy a VIP pass, which got you into every event, or you could buy tickets to individual events. And the prices for individual events were like 25 to 35 And it was kind of a nice way. I did not buy a VIP pass. It was a nice way to just buy a ticket or two per day and then see the city. Yeah. You know, I really didn't want to be so busy that I couldn't enjoy the city. And I was also meeting a big group of friends. And so we got a lot of time to hang out together. The events I did go to, the first one was called The Price of Everything. And this is a film. It's actually available. It's an HBO documentary by Nathaniel Kahn. Interestingly, Nathaniel Kahn is the son of, oh, I can't think of his first name, but the famous architect Kahn, who is the architect behind a lot of the buildings in New Haven, the British Art Museum, the Yale Art Museum, the the more modern section of that is a Kahn piece of work. And he, Nathaniel Kahn kind of made a name for himself in the documentary world with a documentary called My Architect, which was based on his father. But the price of everything is about the art world and the highbrow, like sell a painting for $50 million art world. It was really good. We were kind of wondering at the end, it hadn't occurred to me, like it had nothing to do with books. (laughs) So I'm not quite sure why his movie was shown there, but it was really fun. And then they had him, we watched the movie and then afterwards he came out on stage and talked with several people from the Charleston area about art. So that was really fun. And then the next day on Friday, I went to a session called Small Wonders, which refers to the short story. And that was with Deborah Eisenberg and Lionel Shriver, who are both masters of the short story. And that was really interesting. And it was moderated by a woman named Anne Blessing, who's a professor. And then the next session was Friday Black yeah. with Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. And that was moderated by Bill Goldstein, oh, cool. who we had just seen at the Hachette Book Brunch. Yeah. So that was really fun. And he did a fantastic job. And Nana was just adorable and funny. He did a reading. He didn't read too much, but he did read. And there was this really hysterical moment because he stands up to read the Finkelstein Five. 
he read the first few pages of oh, it, geez. which is incredibly wow. dark, yeah. right? I, that's the one I just was talking about, about children being decapitated by a chainsaw. You can't get much darker than that. But he's reading and you can tell he's reading ahead and he just starts to giggle. Like he starts to giggle uncontrollably. And then he keeps reading and he and he realizes that the story he had placed the story in South Carolina, which he totally forgot, apparently. Yeah. So he was like, just I mean, it was hilarious to him. Like, here I am. I'm reading about this racially charged story in that I set in, you know, in South Carolina, which was a racially charged state. It was really cute to just see him kind of step out of himself for a minute and realize but he currently is a professor at Syracuse, and his mentor is George Saunders, another incredible short story writer. Mm-hmm. So he talked quite a bit about that. And Bill Goldstein did a great job just, you know, queuing up some wonderful questions. And I really enjoyed that session and highly recommend that you read him. And then the other sessions I saw the next day were Prophet of Freedom which was with David W. Blight, another New Haven Yaleite. And he was in conversation with Judge Richard Gergel. And he wrote the Frederick Douglass biography that just won the Pulitzer. Yeah. That was fantastic. Was it? Yeah. I I was really excited to see you. I saw you, you know, your post about it. Yeah. Because I have that on audio. I haven't completely started it. I kind of previewed a little bit, but... Yeah, I had the book in my hand and I thought the same exact thing. That's when I really want to get on audio. And he's a Frederick Douglass scholar and had written a different book about Frederick Douglass already and had no intention of writing another book. And then he was actually down south and doing some sort of presentation on Frederick Douglass. And a gentleman came up to him and said, I have some things I need to show you. And he was a collector and he took David back to his house all over his dining room table were all of these personal photo albums of Frederick Douglass and journals and letters. And he was just a collector and had these six boxes of Frederick Douglass memorabilia, essentially. That's intense. Oh, he said it was just like tingly, this tingly experience. So for the next six Yale spring breaks, (laughs) he went down there and just, you know, basically did Frederick Douglass research in this man's dining room. Wow. Yeah. That's so that's real. So and is that still held by this man privately? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So you just don't know what private collectors have. That's exactly what he said. Yeah. Which was really interesting after having seen the movie The Price of Everything, where you learn that art collecting and you know, you you think about like these big Sotheby's auctions and stuff which is part of the movie, but a lot of collectors just um, pass things between themselves. So you don't really know where the art ends up. And it's the same with these sorts of collections. You know, people just, they have an affinity for someone and they want to collect memorabilia about them. And yeah, well, there's a Bronte, uh, some are, was it Emily or Charlotte? I don't remember which Bronte sister, the one who wrote Jane Eyre. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Wow. I'm feeling like such a failure as a literary scholar at this moment. But some of her early juvenilia is being auctioned off soon. Mm. And the Bronte house in England, they want to buy it. And Dame Judi Dench is the president of the Bronte Society right now, which I didn't realize. So she's kind of spearheading this thing. And you think, how is that in a private person's? Yeah possession and so now to find out that this gentleman has six boxes of frederick Douglass memorabilia how amazing is yeah. that yeah 
Yeah, it's it was really wow. interesting. Yeah, it was a great session because the judge from that was interviewing him or moderating the session has written his own book. And David Blight had done the New York Times book review for that book. I'm sorry, the name of that is escaping me right now. But um, so they were so excited to be on stage together because they were both just historical scholars, you know, yeah. and just it was a brilliant conversation. That's I just amazing. loved now, it. Did they talk at all about, you know, should these things be in a museum accessible? Mm, they did not. They didn't talk about that. No. I mean, it's such a it's interesting because you do yeah. think like these things are kind of national treasures in mm -hmm. some ways. Yeah, people. See, I didn't even think about the museum. I thought, you know, aren't there still heirs of Frederick Douglass's around that might want their photo albums? You know, mm -hmm. I don't know. That's what I thought about. Interesting. But, yeah. you know, but I agree with, you know, you also want them to be preserved and taken care of well. And that's what museums know how to do. Right. I wouldn't, you know, if things were in a box in my moist, you know, oceany air house, they wouldn't be well preserved. So yeah. you do think about that for sure. So the, and then the last of that day was one called Woman of Letters. And it was the key noter. And that was Joyce Carol Oates. Oh, neat. And she was in um, conversation with a gentleman named Jeffrey Harpham, not to badmouth him, but he was quite a literary scholar, and really not up to the task of interviewing Joyce Carol Oates. I have never read her. I've never really seen her. She was throwing shade from the very beginning. I <laughs> fell in love with her and I am now dying to read one of her books because he tried to really pigeonhole her by answering a question about like he, he implied that there had been a Guardian review of her or an article written about her where they said, you know, the really the main focus of if we had to pick one word for all of her work, it would be that she writes about love. And he said, I'm not so sure that's the word I would use for you. But what would you choose? And so of course, right away, she said, she said, well, of course, they think, you know, a woman can only write about love and domesticity and things like that. And she said, you know, of course, that was written by a male critic, because what other kind is there? <laughs> Well, bam, <laughs> she was throwing shade from the very beginning. And I mean, this guy was pulling out all the stops. I don't mean to badmouth him, but he was just not up to the task. Yeah. And, I mean, at one point he was like, Kierkegaard says blah, blah, blah. And I'm just rolling my eyes like, I don't even what is like, huh? <laughs> but she was right on it. She was like, well, you know, I don't really disagree with that aspect of Kierkegaard and blah, blah, blah. And I just thought nothing is going to rattle her. Yeah, nothing. That's awesome. And then the other thing that was really sweet is they had had a foundation sponsor had purchased a bunch of tickets for students to get in. And a student stood up and asked a question about her writing process. And it, she really took good time to answer the question. She's a professor at Princeton still to this day. You can tell she's answered a lot of student questions and it was really sweet. And one of the really thought provoking things she said is that so much of her writing time is thinking. And she said, you know, she'll go out for a run, she'll go out for a fast walk, and she's thinking. And that really is writing to her. And that people think because she's pretty prolific, oh, you yeah, know, very, yeah. that she must write all the time. And she said, you know, I don't really write all the time. I think a lot. And th but then the amazing thing is after she was done, you know, and got off the stage, and I'm thinking, wow, she thinks while she's running. And then we were Wikipediaing her on our way out. She's 81 years old. 
Is she really? Yeah, I would have never guessed that wow. from looking at her. I, she looked great. Yeah, I mean, mm. I know she's well to been around as long as I can remember. Yeah, um, I know that's not always a compliment anymore <laughs> as I continue to age, but. Um, yeah, I mean, she's been writing for so long and I've read several of her novels and really enjoy them. And I've, she's written in every genre, practically. It's yeah. quite amazing. Yeah, because she does. She has mysteries and all sorts of stuff. Short story novels. She's a huge fan of boxing. I had no idea. Wow. So oh, she's yeah. written Didn't a lot a, about that. A, a biography of mm-hmm. some boxer or something. Yeah. yeah. And she talked about that. That has a lot to do with her childhood. And hmm. she went on and on about boxing. And then she said, oh, my goodness, you probably shouldn't have got me started because someone asked her a question. There was one very inappropriate question that, you know, there's always like that guffaw moment you have. Like, I cannot believe someone just said that. Where a woman stood up and she said, many of your characters... Um, struggle with obesity. From looking at you, I can tell you've never had that problem. Ooh. And I just thought, really? You can tell that by looking at her? You know, maybe she struggles with that every day. What do you know? Right. You know, yeah. and it was just this very awkwardly phrased thing. So any that one was really weird. How did she handle that? She didn't bite at all. I mean, she just talked about people's physical nature and you know how we are in the world and she just didn't she didn't even go there at all so Mm. but it was just very awkward in my mind and then the last thing I saw on the last day was the great believers with Rebecca Mackay and again um, moderated by Bill Goldstein which was wonderful this was a book I admitted to um, not finishing Mm -hmm. earlier on but I think it really was a time and a place thing for me and I'm desperate to get back to it because it's staying in my memory the part I read you know a third of it so yeah so more to come on that but she's really great and she's been getting around she's traveled quite a bit with this book and she had said something like in the last 30 days she slept in her own bed twice or something and she has young kids so but that was a great session and again that book is the session was called the great believers that's also the title of the book by Rebecca Mackay so the other thing I just wanted to mention briefly is that two they have two independent bookstores in Charleston. Both of them were great. Buxton Books, which was also the sponsor and had all of the books at the Charleston to Charleston Festival. They had great, you know, not only authors' current books, but lots of their backlist as well. And then authors always signed after each of the sessions. And they had an hour between sessions, which was really nice. That is nice. Yeah. So you can freshen up and get signatures and chat up the authors and your friends and take a little break. And then Blue Bicycle Books was a fantastic new and used bookstore in Charleston. And at the same time that I was down there over the weekend, they had they sponsored this huge festival called Y'all Fest, <laughs> which is a YA festival that brought in over twelve thousand. That's amazing. People. That one picture you posted, it's I thought it said Yale Fest. I'm like, yeah. what? Like, and then I thought Y'all Fest. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, so cute that it's called that. But they also brought heavy hitters, as did the Charleston to Charleston Festival. I mean, I'm just telling you the ones that I saw, but yeah. they had heavy hitters every session that's fantastic yeah Yeah. and it's only their third year it's going to probably just keep getting better and better so it would make an incredible family weekend also because you can go and get tickets for the kids to things go to the charleston to charleston eat good food there's water it's a beautiful city i highly recommend it so that was my visit to charleston fantastic yeah i had one other event that i went to just this week or was it last week 
what is today? Today's Monday, so it was last week. Last week, okay. I went to Breakwater Books right here in Guilford yeah. and saw Juliet Grames. That's awesome. Yeah, she's the author of The Seven or Eight Deaths of Stella Fortuna. And this is a book that Alyssa from Bank Square Books told us about when we were interviewing her back at Book Expo. Mm -hmm. I read it. I loved it. I've talked about it on a previous episode, so I won't bore you with the details. But she's adorable. She's very Italian. She was raised in this area in an Italian immigrant family, which is, uh, you know, this book is semi, semi, semi autobiographical. I mean, it's loosely based on the story of her grandmother. Mm And she brought her mother to the event, which was really fun. And the event was sponsored by the National Organization of Italian American Women. So it was filled with a bunch of beautiful Italian women. And they were heading out to dinner together with Juliet afterwards. That's great. That's really nice to have different organizations involved that way. Yeah. And it was really fun. They even regaled us with a uh, folk song that uh, Juliet sang and her mother translated into the English. And it was all about a man's donkey. And it was very funny. (laughs) (laughs) So I want to remind people about that book because it's a really good one. So very cool. Yeah. Next up, we are skipping our upcoming jaunts and upcoming reads to bring you our 2019 holiday gift suggestions. Yes, it's that time, everybody. This is our third year doing this. Yeah, that's right. Because we started the podcast in December of 2017. And I think we kind of started with some holiday ideas that year, right? Yeah, possibly like our second episode or something like that. So we each have three different ideas. You want to go first? Sure, I could go first. My first idea is to get a custom embossed notebook, like a moleskin or a like term. Notebook. Um, John Valeri, our mystery man, gave me one last year um, that was red and it said Chris Wallach Book Cougar on it, which is really sweet. (laughs) And I know that actually speaking of Bank Square Books, they're actually having an event with Like Term on November 24th from 4 to 6 p.m. where you can come and buy your notebook and get get it engraved for free. Oh, how cool. As a holiday gift. So that's a a fun thing to do. Yeah, that's a great idea. I love that. My first thing is um, thinking of our listeners out there in the world. I'm using this right now. It's a Panasonic ErgoFit earbud. And the reason I use this is because the ones that come with your phone don't work in my ears. And it's purple. And it's purple so I can find it. Mm -hmm. I used to buy them in black and then I could never find them anywhere. (laughs) So now I buy them in purple. And they're super cheap. They're like $10. Nice. And what I like is that the little rubber piece that goes in your ear comes in three sizes. That's great. Apparently I have petite ears. I had no idea. You're a petite flower. So I always, when I get my new one, because I do go through these quite a bit, I have to admit, plus I have them everywhere. Yeah. Like I have one in my purse and in my computer bag and in my car. And um, I take it off, the rubber off immediately and put the smallest little piece on. And they're so comfortable. They have a microphone, so you can use them with your smartphone or whatever as well. Great. But I listen to lots of podcasts through my earbuds. And you always have a pair handy, which is the key. So the next item I have is literary cards or literary decks. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple here and we can post a picture of them. 
So the first deck I have is actually from the Mysterious Bookshop. It's Mysterious Classic Cards, 1828 to 1950. And each card is a different book cover. And then it has a little bit about the book on the back, which is really cool because those were some really neat uh, covers back in the day. So that's an idea. And then another one is, does this name ring a bell? A quiz of literary characters. Oh, how fun. Now, this one is like for hardcore, like, you know, English major types who I'm sure could get really competitive because I was looking (laughs) through these the other day. So like on one side, it has the character's name. And then on the back, it has who the person was. And some of these, I was like, who is that person? Let me, here, pick a card. Robert Jordan. Who is Robert Jordan? The demolitions expert and protagonist in Ernest Hemingway's For Whom the Bell Tolls, 1940. <laughs> yeah, no I way. I that. No way I'd ever remember that. Yeah. So this is a little bit of a hardcore one. That's cool, though. And, um, you know, I'm not giving these titles out there as specific items, but most bookstores and gift shops, you know, they often have these types of decks. Yeah. Um, another one that I, the most recent one that I have is the Literary Witches Oracle. It's a 70-card deck and guidebook. And, you know, an oracle is, you know, it's like a card that you can take out that can inspire you, that can help you think about things differently. And this one focuses on uh, women writers, which is just a fun thing. So these can be, this is a little bit of a bigger deck. The one with the quiz was a little smaller, so they could be good stocking stuffers. Yeah, for sure. That's a great idea. My second thing is getting a subscription to Believer Magazine. The Believer is one that anytime I go to a bookstore, I look for it and it comes out bi-monthly, which means every other month. So the issue I'm holding in my hand is the October-November issue. They're calling it the Immigrant Issue. It has such amazing authors in here. So what it is, is I'm actually just going to read you what they how they describe it. It's a literature, arts, and culture magazine based at the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harder Black Mountain Institute, a department of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. In each issue, readers will find journalism, essays, intimate interviews, an expansive comic section, poetry, and on occasion, delightful and unexpected bonus items. Our poetry section is curated by Jericho Brown, Kristen Radke selects our comics, and Joshua Wolfshank is our editor-in-chief. All issues feature a column by Nick Hornby in which he discusses the things he's been reading as well as a comedy advice column. I love this magazine and you can't find it everywhere. So I personally just treated myself to a subscription Mm -hmm. because our buddy Minjin Lee was in this issue, as was Valeria Luiselli, who's the woman who I have been talking about, who wrote the essays about the, the 40 questions Oh, now I can't think of the title. I know what you're talking okay. about. The 40 questions of for that kids are asked when they're immi- trying to immigrate right. to the United States. Yeah. And um, Sandra Cisneros is in here and a poem from Ken Chen. It's just a fantastic magazine. It's a cool size. It's always beautiful. The colors in it are beautiful. And the writing is fantastic. And I think it would make a great, great gift. Yeah. And I like it because it's not that slick kind of paper it's yeah yeah it's matte or whatever you call it yeah easy on the eyes easy on the eyes the art's really cool believer magazine all right well my last suggestion is a little on the pricier side but 
it's something you could get for yourself as well. (laughs) (laughs) And it's probably not something you're going to buy for somebody randomly. This is for your hardcore book person. But how about getting them a library cart slash library truck? You know, you see those in libraries. Sometimes bookstores have them. They're the long carts where you can have, sometimes they're one-sided, sometimes they're two-sided. And usually at a library, they're that boring tan color or Mm -hmm. the older ones are made out of wood, which are so cool. Yeah. They now make them in really vibrant colors in different sizes. So you can get a narrow one that can be next to somebody's desk. And the cool thing is, you know, they roll. Right. I mean, that's the whole point of this. Anybody, you know, you can get a cheap bookshelf at Ikea or whatever, but these roll. So I've had it on my mind to get one for myself to have like my current reads on there or like my, you know, upcoming reads so that I can move them around with me in the house. They're at least a hundred to a couple hundred dollars. The bigger ones could be more than $300. Um, There are a couple places to look online if you want to check them out. Demco.com, D-E-M-C-O. And then also Broadart, B-R-O-D-A-R-T.com. They're two library supplier companies where you can purchase these with the different vibrant colors. There's also a place called the librarystore.com. I've seen them there. I'm not as familiar with that company, um, but I have purchased other things from the first two websites I mentioned. And I just think that could be a really fun thing, especially, you know, you get it to match somebody's room or Mm -hmm. office. Yeah, that's a great idea. And we'll put all that information in the show notes. Well, that's perfect because my last idea doesn't cost much at all. (laughs) This is a do-it-yourself project idea. When my kids were younger and still at home, I used to host a Hanukkah party every year and I would invite a lot of people and I would make a ton of potato pancakes and roast chicken and things like that. And I always wanted to give a gift to each person who came but couldn't really afford to buy people things. And so the kids and I would watercolor designs on printer paper, just like your home laser printer or, you know, inkjet printer, whatever you have, let the watercolors dry. And then you, I would put like heavy cookbooks on top of it to flatten it out because they get a little bit wrinkly when you do that. And then you can take your favorite quotes, inspirational quotes or poems, things like that, and actually print directly on this beautiful paper that you've created. You can also just go out and buy pretty printing paper if you want to cut to the chase. But this was a project I could do with my kids that Mm -hmm. was kind of like thinking about the holidays, making things for people. And then once you print them, when I would do quotes, I would then cut them. Like I had this paper cutter that for some reason I decided to leave in Ohio. It was one of my favorite possessions, but didn't come with me. And I would cut them and then use laminating paper and put magnets on them. You can put them on your fridge, things like that. You don't have to put magnets on them. I would some one year I just got like cute little silk pouches and just put a bunch of laminated quotes in a pouch for people. That's cute. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be a good bookmark too. Yes. I made bookmarks one year. Yep. You can definitely, you can just go wild with this. But part of what I enjoyed about it was actually doing the pretty paper with my kids Mm -hmm. and then coming up with the quotes to put on them and things like that. That's really cool. Yeah. So a do-it-yourself project with words. Like words are really important to me and I like passing on some of my favorite things. I'm a fan of writing quotes from books when I'm reading them, things that really touch me. So that's my idea. And then the last idea is kind of a joint idea for that 
because Chris and I spend a lot of time all year going to fun book things together. So if you have a friend that you want to do something bookish with, you could look ahead on author sites, places like we have access to 92nd Street Y, um, your library, your library, and just plan a date with a friend. You know, most of these events are free. When you start going to like the 92nd Street Y's and things like that, it's not. But, you know, just book an event with a friend as a holiday gift and give them a little coupon. Yeah. That'd be know? so much fun to do. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. get a lot of pleasure all year from doing stuff like that. Definitely. So. It's, you know, it's an adventure. It's an experience. Yeah. And a lot of people are trying to cut down on stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're in that category or you have a friend in that category, doing an experience around books could be the way to go. Yeah. And a lot of times you just don't really know what to get for somebody. Mm-hmm. I struggle with that. And then I feel like when it's on demand, like, oh, you got to decide this week. I get even more stressed out, but planning an event is usually a fun thing. And, you know, talking about Gretchen Rubin again, one of the things she really talks about is scheduling is always the thing that keeps people from getting together. Yeah. So if you just get it on the calendar, get it circled, make a date, then it tends to happen. Then if you just think, you know, oh, surely we'll make this happen. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, one of the helpful hints of someone who stood up when it was kind of the audience participation time said that when she goes out with a friend before they part that night they always make a schedule for the date for the next time right and even if it changes at least you know we have to get on the phone and talk about it because we have it scheduled exactly you know so so do something fun with a friend in in the bookish world that's right great advice (laughs) and whatever kind of holiday you celebrate that you have a good one yeah absolutely and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode until then Happy reading. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. To keep the bookish conversation going online, join our Goodreads group or connect with us on social media. If you'd like to contribute to our hunt for a good read, you can donate on Patreon. And if you have a minute to review us on whatever app you use to listen to us, we appreciate it. It can help other listeners find us. Thanks, everybody.